Well, I don't know what your life was like before you came to Christ. Maybe you were wild and crazy and your life was totally out of control. Maybe you completely ruined uh, your life and your life was just in shambles. Or maybe you were a child when you came to Christ and you hadn't had a lot of time to destroy everything and get hooked on drugs and all those wild, crazy things that uh, we may hear about from time to time. Here's the thing. The circumstances and the details surrounding how you came to Christ and what your life was like at the time, well, that's different for everybody. But I can guarantee that no matter who's listening to this, there's something that's true about you and something that's true about me. We came to Christ under different circumstances and with a different type of lifestyle, but we all came with the exact same condition. Let me show you why on this episode of By the Verse. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of By the Verse. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to this material. That really helps us out. You can like and share it. We want to get it out there to as many people as possible. Well, last uh, time on our podcast, we talked about Ephesians chapter 1, and the really big idea there is that we are in Christ, but we also live in Ephesus, okay? And so Paul is going to give us the backstory of our salvation so that we can understand how this in Christ thing came about. God created the world, but before that, he had already determined how he would fix what would become our greatest problem, and that is the problem of sin. He determined that through Jesus being the vehicle and instrument of God's plan, that he would bless us with every spiritual blessing. So we're chosen and adopted, redeemed. God made known his will to us. He gave us an inheritance and he gave us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we'll acquire full possession of everything God has in store for his people. So we saw God going all in in chapter one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul doesn't necessarily give us a super zoomed in detailed view of salvation, but he does give us a zoom out big picture view of salvation. Of course, Jesus is the big thing. Jesus is the eternal purpose of God was to make Jesus the forefront, the head. And we see Jesus at the end of chapter one being the head of everything in his exalted state. Well, with that, let's hop into chapter two. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now let's stop there. Uh, we are all familiar uh, in our culture with the before and after picture, okay? The health and wellness 
industry has really uh, perfected this. They show you a before picture where not only does this person desperately need this product that they're selling, but they also need somebody to do their hair and their makeup and somebody to take their picture because the picture is always a bad picture no matter what the product is. But the after picture, man, not only has the product that the company is selling has worked, but now the person also has a professional camera crew and hair and makeup detail um, so, man, it, it really exaggerates the before and after. Well, Paul here is going to give us a before and after picture. What did our life look like before Christ, and what does it look like now that we are in Christ? And Paul doesn't exaggerate. He just gives it to us straight like it is. And the first three verses of this chapter, the best word that we could use to describe our condition before Christ is dead. I mean, that, that's really the word. Uh, one of my favorite commentators put it like this. He said, the unbeliever is not sick. He is dead. He does not need resuscitation. He needs resurrection. If you think back with me for a moment in the Gospels, there were three people that Jesus raised from the dead that are specifically uh, mentioned. We've got the 12-year-old girl in Luke chapter 8. We've got an unnamed young man in Luke chapter 7. And then, of course, we have Lazarus in John chapter 11. Okay, The little girl had just died. I mean, she pretty much died while Jesus was on the way uh, to her house or shortly before that, okay? So it hadn't been a very long time at all. The young man had probably been dead for the better part of the day. In that culture, they tried to bury you the same day you passed away. And so they were having his funeral procession when Jesus encountered them. So he'd probably died earlier in the day. Lazarus, we know, had been dead for four days by the time Jesus resurrected him. The only difference between these three is the level of decay. That's the only difference. The little girl and the young man hadn't been dead long enough to start stinking, but they were still dead. See, when we look at people, we tend to divide them up into how badly do you stink, okay? Some people, their life is a mess. Their life reeks of sin and death because they've just ruined everything. Other people, you know, their lives don't look that bad. They come from a hardworking family, you know, good folks, salt-of-the-earth type uh, uh, hardworking folks, fairly ethical uh, people, and it doesn't seem that bad. But just because one's life has has not decayed as much maybe as someone else's life doesn't mean that spiritually you're not dead. Okay, dead is dead no matter the level of decay. So it doesn't matter how much a person's life obviously reeks of death. Dead is dead. And that applies to every single one of us before Christ came into our lives and made us alive. Now, Paul not only points out that we were dead, and not specific, not like in general, like everybody was dead, but he says you were dead. It's, it's very 
personal, okay? Think of your story, no matter how good, how bad, no matter what it was like, you were dead before Christ. And Paul gives us a few characteristics of what the the lifestyle of death is like. In verse two, he says, it follows the course of the world. Well, what is the course of the world? It's basically how the world makes decisions, how the world values things, okay? If it feels good, then do it. If it makes you happy, then go for it. If it's not hurting anyone, then it's not wrong. I mean, this is the course or the pattern or the way of thinking of the world. It is not based on God's absolute unchanging standard, okay? It is based on what the world thinks and how the world feels, okay? The other thing about the dead lifestyle is it follows the prince of the air. Now, if you watch college football, you know, at least up to to date of this recording, it's sponsored by Dr. Pepper, If you watch PBS, they always tell you it is brought to you by these generous sponsors. Well, the the sponsor of the dead lifestyle is the prince of the air. This is another uh, way of referring to Satan, okay? He doesn't make anybody do anything necessarily. What he does is he provides the influence and the justification for every kind of ungodly thing there is. He did not make Eve eat the fruit. He just gave her the justification for why she could eat the fruit and why she should eat the fruit and why it was really a good thing and not a bad thing as God had laid it out for them. The dead lifestyle operates by the world's value system. It is brought to you by the the prince of the air, who is Satan, and it exploits our own desires. And that's what he says in verse 3. It indulges the flesh. Now, desire is not a bad thing, but when desire becomes so compelling that it expresses itself in a perverted way. And and by perverted, I just mean that it is in any way that is different from God's design of, of how he has prescribed it to be in his word. Then that really is indulging the flesh. It's the lust of the flesh. And it's about more than sexual desire, but obviously it includes sexual desire. If sexual desire becomes so compelling that we have to give it this expression that is contrary to the word of God, then it is wrong. Ambition is not wrong, but ambition that is so strong that it doesn't matter the wake of bodies we leave in our path or uh, how much we're, we're willing to lie or cheat or steal to obtain it, then that is what the lust of the flesh looks like. We all once lived in a way that made the goal of life the satisfaction of inordinate desire expressed in ways that are contrary to God's word. As a result of that lifestyle, we were a part of a spiritual family known as the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath. So that's the bad picture, okay? And it's not until verse four that he tells us the after picture, okay? After Jesus has come into our lives in verse four, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, this is the picture that that we can look at that is the glamorous picture. But this is a real reality. It, it's not been exaggerated at all, okay? When he says, but God, how many sermons have you heard that have been preached that way? But God, and then you fill in you know, the blank. Uh, what this is, is a statement of our utter helplessness. Okay, we were locked, locked into a world system, uh, into uh, a, a system that we could not escape from. But God, who is so rich in mercy and love and kindness, Well, he sent his son. And by sending his son for us, it accomplished three very broad uh, things for us. Number one, we find them in verse five and verse six of this chapter. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him. Now in making us alive, what he did was he basically restored that part of us that could connect to God because we were dead. We were unable to respond to God appropriately. If you tickle a dead body, the person doesn't laugh. Their body can't respond to that anymore because they are dead. And that's what we were like. God was right there in front of us. Well, but our eyes couldn't see him because they were dead eyes. God was speaking to us, but with our dead ears, we couldn't hear. But now through Christ, we are alive to the activity of God. Now let's take a flashback to chapter one, verse 19, 18, and 20. Paul talks to us about the power of God that's been at work in us and he that's been at work, sorry, in uh, Christ. And he talks about Christ when he's raised, he's raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, okay? So God worked his power in Christ, raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So in the first chapter, Christ is raised and seated. But in the second chapter, we are raised and seated. God did for Christ what he then turns around and does for us. Christ did the group project all by himself, but we get the A+. What Christ has earned by his sacrifice and his suffering, we gladly receive. I mean, think back to when uh, Lazarus was called out of the tomb, okay? What did Jesus say after that? Well, he said, loose him. You know, he, he had to take the grave clothes off. Why? Because it was restrictive. He, he couldn't live freely. Resurrection is always about power. 
when Christ has raised you, what he has done is he has given you now power and freedom to live for him unencumbered. Being raised uh, to life means that I now have the power to freely live the life that Christ has called me to live. And now I have a seat at the table in heavenly places. Now, the beauty of all of this is that it's totally a gift. That's what Paul says. It's the gift of God that nobody uh, can boast. It's not of your own doing. Well, I think sometimes people misunderstand the, the nature of this type of a gift. If I stretch out my hand and I freely offer you $100 to bless you, and you reach out your hand to receive it, Yeah, you had to reach out your hand to receive it, but it was totally a free gift. You didn't make me give it to you. Well, what if I stretch out my hand with that $100? I hand it to you. You receive it from me, and I say, hey, this $100 is for you to buy a pair of shoes. I've seen your shoes. They're horrible. You really need a pair of shoes. And then you go out, and you spend that $100 on the pair of shoes. Hey, I gave you that freely, but it came with some stipulations. And then you turned around and used it in accordance with the reason for which it was given. That's called responsibility. See, when God gives us salvation, yes, it's a free gift. We don't do anything to earn the offer of salvation. It's freely given to us and provided to us. But we have to receive it. That's our responsibility is to receive. Okay? Everything in the kingdom is not about earning. It's about receiving what God has freely made available to us through faith. And then when we receive it, we have a responsibility. And I think at at chapter 4, that's when we'll start to talk about what our responsibility in Christ really is, okay? So Paul has given us the before and after picture, but then there's kind of an additional thing that were that was working against those of us who were Gentiles, okay? So we pick that up in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and with it without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, let's, let's stop right there. Basically, Paul has listed five things Uh, that describe the additional things that were against those of us who were Gentiles and were on the outside. And and I think the best word to describe it is without or outside, okay? We were outsiders. We were without these five things he lists in verses, uh, verse 12, essentially. We were separated from Christ, which means we had no hope of a Savior, The Jews had a hope of a savior one day, but we had no hope of a savior, okay? We didn't even know anything about that. We were excluded from citizenship in Israel. We were strangers to the covenant 
promises, okay? So we couldn't even lean on those. We had no hope, which basically meant we had no future. And we were separated from God's special help. That's what it means to be without God in the world. We were totally separated. We were on the outside. But because of Christ, we are now on the inside. We now have all of the things that we were without. And picking it up at verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together Uh, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Okay, so, so here's the thing. We were on the outside, but now we are on the inside. And Paul is sitting in prison right now because he's been preaching to the Gentiles and the Jews didn't like it. And so in Acts chapter 21, we find this whole story of how he gets arrested and one, not all, but one of the accusations against Paul was that he had taken, get this, an Ephesian Gentile into the temple past the dividing wall. In the temple, believing Gentiles could go into the court of the Gentiles, but they could not go any further into the temple that was reserved for Jewish men who could go all the way in up to a certain point. And so even though Paul hadn't actually done this, simply because they had seen this Ephesian uh, Gentile named Trophimus with Paul earlier that day, they assumed that Paul had taken him uh, past the dividing wall. So this guy is in jail, okay, partly because they say he took this, this, uh, this Gentile uh, past this dividing wall. He really didn't, okay? But he writes back to these very same Gentiles, and says, hey guys, this dividing wall thing, it's not a thing anymore. Literally, Christ killed it. He slayed it, okay? Spiritually, this dividing wall that separates us, that is over in Christ Jesus, okay? If you are a believer, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, Christ preached peace to us, the ones who were far, being the Gentiles, and the ones who were near, being the Jews, And he made one body. That's the whole thing. He made one body out of the two, okay? And so this new body, the body of Christ, is under Christ Jesus as the head and all of the things that the Gentiles didn't have, they now have in Christ Jesus. And the teaching about all of this has been laid out, Paul says, by the prophets and the apostles, God's holy prophets and apostles. They are laying, at the time he's writing this, the foundation of the church with, of course, Christ being that cornerstone of that foundation.
Well, here's the thing. There's there's one uh, section of this that I kind of uh, skipped over, but that's because I wanted to talk about it at the end. Right all the way back in verse 10, he says, for we are the workmanship, uh, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Here's the thing. Here's the takeaway for today. You, regardless of what your past is like, regardless of what your life was like pre-Christ, the thing you need to hold on to today is that you're God's handiwork. One way to translate that word is masterpiece. Now, please don't walk around telling people you're a masterpiece because it won't sound (laughs) uh, all that humble, okay? But when you look at your own life, you need to remember that anything that's been good about your life has been good because Christ has shaped, God has shaped you into this beautiful thing, this beautiful masterpiece of His. It's not because you're so great, it's because He is so great. And because He's so great, He has a purpose and a plan for you and you don't wanna miss it. So no matter how you feel about your life, maybe you're doing great, and things are great. Hey, then be grateful for what God has done in your life. Maybe you feel down on yourself. Hey, listen, you're you're his masterpiece. He's molding you and shaping you, and he's not done yet, okay? So hold on in faith to that. Well, that is all that we have for you today on this episode of By the Verse. I am really excited to hop into chapter three next time because I know that's where he's going to wrap up some of these ideas. It's going to hit a good crescendo there. So join me, okay, next time on By the Verse.